So John chapter 15, and uh, we're looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. The section really goes on to about uh, probably verse 11, but for time's sake, uh, I'm going to limit it to uh, verses 1 through 8, and we'll stop there. Did somebody say good? Oh, okay. (laughs) Thought I heard somebody say good. I was like, I'm hungry too, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. All right. Um, So let's read together, John 15, 1 through 8. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we simply come before you and before your word this morning. We ask that you would guide us into truth. We pray that your spirit uh, would... um, Open our minds and our hearts so that we can understand what you would have for us this morning. Father, as I I preach and the word goes forward, I'm reminded of the promise that your word does not return void. It does not fail to accomplish what you sent it to do. I pray that you would plow up the rough ground in the hearts this morning that may be here that, that needs some plowing up. And I pray you would plant and I pray you would bring a harvest where that needs to happen, Father. We thank you that according to your spirit, you apply it in the ways that we need to hear it most, and you work in our lives in that way, and we're thankful. We ask you to do it today in accord with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we come to the last of the I Am statements in the Gospel of John, and uh, this morning we're going to be zeroing in on when Jesus says in John 15 that he is the true vine. I am uh, the true vine. And to be really honest with you, preaching this text this week, uh, I have been anxious about preaching this text for about a week and a half now, and here's why. Um, If you have ever been to a Mexican restaurant where you walk in and at the beginning they have uh, one of those really, really big burritos, one of those Goliath-type burritos, where it's about three foot long and about a foot and a half wide, and if you can eat the entire thing in one sitting, they will pay for it. Uh, this to me, this text feels like one of those massive Goliath burritos because to me it's one of the most power-packed passages in the New Testament. And to be really honest with you, I've spent the last three days, you're going to thank me for this later I think, I've spent the last three days like figuring out what can we cut out of this message for this morning and, and where do we need to best spend our time because we could seriously stay in John 15, 1 through 11 For the rest of the afternoon and into the evening service. There is so much packed into this one passage in scripture. I would say this. Outside of preaching John chapter 1 in the past. This passage probably more than anything I've ever personally studied. In preparation to preach. Has absolutely 
uh, rocked my world and, and caused me to worship with a joy and a freedom um, that, that I, I don't know that I've ever felt in, in many other passages in the New Testament. So this morning we're going to try to work it into our time frame together, but I want us to look at this statement. In this final I am statement, Jesus uses a powerful image. Now, this image may not jump off the page at you. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But he uses the powerful image of a vine and branches and fruit to convey some deep, profound spiritual truths to his followers. So for context, we need to remember, he was with his disciples, uh, 11 of them. They were walking together um, towards the garden to pray. And it's likely that Jesus stopped in a vineyard along the roadside. And it's very likely, we don't know this, but it's very likely that he took a cluster of grapes, a branch in his hand, and he began to take this simple symbol and to bring out some profound truth for his followers. And so as I studied this text this week, several questions came to mind that to me sort of um, run right along with what Jesus is teaching in John 15. So let me give you those three questions, and we will tackle this passage looking at those questions. The first question this morning that comes to my mind is, what did Jesus mean when he tells us his followers to abide? What does the word abide mean? What did he mean to his followers? What does that part of the text mean? Question number two, how should we understand and define the word fruit? This is huge because so many people misunderstand, in my, in my view, misunderstand and misapply fruit. And they equate fruit with outward works. They equate fruit with, with total externals. And they, they look at it in terms of, here's what I'm doing for God and this makes me acceptable to God. Fruit and works in the New Testament are different things. Works may come because there is fruit growing, but fruit is the natural result of abiding in the vine. So we need to distinguish between those this morning. And then the third question is this. What is God's bigger purpose? What is God's bigger purpose for your life in you bearing spiritual fruit? So I want to say this. You may listen to this text and you think, man, I, I'm just a, I'm a Sunday go to meeting kind of Christian. And uh, I might come back to the Sunday night thing, but I'm a good person and I don't, uh, you know, I don't watch certain things on daytime TV. And, I, you know, you, you might fill in the blanks and all these things that make you think that, you know, you're just a regular kind of Joe Christian. But here's the thing. Bearing fruit is not some kind of special classification for Christians on the top shelf. Bearing fruit is the expectation of every single Christian who's ever had a relationship with Christ and abiding in the vine. It is the natural result of a relationship with Jesus that is day in and day out. And so if you're looking this morning to kind of exclude yourself from this bearing fruit thing, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you cannot and you should not. Because fruit bearing happens naturally because of that relationship. So what is God's bigger purpose? Why does he want you to bear fruit? So this morning, let's start with the first question. The first question is this. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Jesus uses that word over and over and over and over. What does it mean for us to abide in Christ? Well, let's start with verse 1. Verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So in this text, Jesus tells us who he is. He says, you know, look at the vine growing off of the ground, you know, maybe three feet high. I am that vine. And he says, my Father, my Heavenly Father, is the vine dresser. Now, some of your translations may say 
the gardener. And that's okay. It's just another way, uh, maybe a more contemporary way of saying uh, what the role of the father is in this metaphor. He comes along and gardens and tends to and dresses the vine so that it will produce fruit. And so the one job of the vine dresser is to carefully cultivate these branches. The abundance of fruit is the goal. So he says then in verse 2, or or, or further in, he says that followers of Christ then are the branches that are connected to that vine. And Jesus makes it clear that only, please hear this, only by having a vital union, vitally staying connected to the vine who is Jesus, can life flow from the vine into the branches and fruit can be bore. Okay, So if we disconnect from Jesus, we will not see spiritual fruit in our lives. And when I say disconnect, I'm not talking about in a salvation kind of way. I'm talking about if we try to function and do the Christian life on our own. If we try to operate in our own power, Jesus tells us what's going to happen. So he sets up this metaphor, very, very powerful metaphor. But see, here's the thing. For us today, it's a good chance that none of you, and I may be wrong, But none of you or very few of you have a grapevine growing up the front of your doorpost and around the top and down. Does anybody have a grapevine growing up the front of their door? I don't see any hands. Okay, so chances are for us this morning, when we hear this vine, branches, fruit, it's not going to immediately just leap off the page like it did for a first century Jewish person. Vineyards were everywhere. In fact, for a lot of these uh, Jewish people in their homes, they would allow the, the grapevine to grow up the side, over the door, and down the other side. But here's the thing. They didn't allow it to grow wild. They didn't allow it just to run all over the place because if it wasn't tended to, it's not going to produce fruit. It has to be cultivated. So in verse 1, Jesus says he is the true vine, alethinos. He is the true vine. So when you read something is true, it naturally brings a comparison to something that is what? False. Good. Two of you are with me right now. Okay. It naturally brings a comparison of something that is true and something that is false. So if Jesus is the true vine, then what that means is somewhere in the record of Scripture, there has to be a false vine. So who is the false vine? In the Old Testament, if you study this, look it up on a Bible study program or or, or just Google it, you can find it. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was repeatedly compared to a wayward vine, to a vine that just ran wild, grew all over the ground, did not produce the fruit that it was designed to produce. And see, God put his love on Israel, called them out. You remember Abraham, he was worshiping idols called Abram, sorry, Abram out of idol worship and said, I'm going to set my love on you, not because of anything you've done, but because I want to display my goodness and my glory in your people. And then by doing that, the pagan people around you are going to see how good I am. It was a way that he was going to bless the world by choosing this one nation. But see, here's what happened with Israel. They failed to stay connected to their father. They intermarried with people that were uh, of different religions and they took on some of the cultural practices of other religions. So they were the wayward vine that just grew wild and did not produce the fruit and glorify the name of God. And so they failed miserably. So every time you come across this Old Testament image of a vine of Israel, interestingly, it is always negative. It is a picture of failure. So why does Jesus say he is the true vine? 
Because he's taking, and this is so good, like I get so excited about this. He's taking a, an Old Testament failure, and he's saying, I'm about to fulfill what should have happened through Israel. And he says, I'm the true vine because I'm turning this failure on its head, and I'm going to turn it into a success. He's saying, I can perfectly do what Israel failed to do to glorify the name of God by bearing fruit from a relationship with him. And if you will abide in me, if you'll stay connected with me, then the organic, natural result of a union with Christ is fruit always. Always. Now notice, and I love this. Oh man, I love this. Jesus doesn't say that every Christian has to have the same number of grapes on the vine, does he? No, praise God. What if Jesus said there has to be 27 and a half grapes on every person's vine? You know what everybody in this place is going to be doing? Looking at each other's clusters. We're going to be looking around going, how many grapes do you have? Because I have 18 and I'm getting closer to 27. And you only have four and so you're not God's favorite Christian. And that's what would happen. Jesus doesn't quantify it. He's getting to qualify here. He's qualifying the the abundance that he desires to see in his believers. So here's the thing. When a person becomes a Christian, we may not look at their life and go and and count the grapes and go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We may not do that. But here's the thing. When a person becomes a believer, if they stay connected to Jesus Christ, you know what's going to pop up? A little grape. Maybe just one. And maybe that one grape in a person's life who came out of some terrible, difficult things, maybe that one grape glorifies the Father more than 27 other grapes on somebody else's vine who goes, look at how many grapes I have. Okay? So don't despair this morning if you look at your life and you see just one little grape. Or you look at your spouse's or your children's or your best friend's life and you see just three little grapes and you're thinking, I just wish that I could help them produce more fruit. Listen, the fruit is not for us to produce. Like, unshoulder that burden. You don't produce the fruit. When you stay connected to the vine, the Father sees to it. He cultivates the fruit in your life. So do you know what your only responsibility is? To live in union with Jesus Christ. If you believe in him and you have absolutely said, you know what, I've counted the cost. This may require something of me. I may lose a job. God may call me here. This may make me unpopular. But Jesus is the only way. If you do that and you live in obedience, those two things are together. They're together. You can't believe and not obey. They just don't work that way. The words are synonymous in the New Testament. If you believe, you're going to want to obey. It's going to be your delight to obey. You're going to be excited about worshiping. You're going to be excited about giving financially to the kingdom work. You're going to be excited about singing songs in work. You are going to be pumped about waking up and saying, God, here I am for another day. Do what you want to with my life because I'm just a branch. It's going to be your delight. I'm way off my notes. I have no idea where I am. Verse 2 and 3. Verse 2 and 3 describes what the Father does in our lives. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The word is iro. It means to lift up, I believe to take away. Some translations say to remove. 
And there's the difference of idea about that, I understand, but we're going to go with that this morning. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it would do what? Bear more fruit. You know what John Piper says about this? This is so good. Here's the Father's activity in your life. The vine dresser, the Father, cuts off what is lifeless and he cultivates what is living. He cuts off what is lifeless and he cultivates what is living. And, and this is what I've been saying this morning. This is the thing. A branch that is connected to the vine will bear fruit. This is the promise Jesus says in verse 5. If a man abides in me, remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. So here's the bottom line. To be a Christian is to bear spiritual fruit. Very clear. If you are a believer, Jesus said in Matthew 7.20, by their fruit you will recognize them. Have you ever been in a room with a person, you didn't really know them, you weren't all that well acquainted, but you began to have a little conversation, and you sensed something about them that was sort of knit together with your heart and your soul. And you look at them and you think, I think that person's a believer. And you ask them and you say, are you a Christian? And instead of going, yeah, don't tell anybody. They're like, yeah, I am. How did you know? And you just know it because the same spirit that is living in them is the spirit that's living in you. And it's knit together and you're like, man, we belong to one another. We're branches on the same vine. And I don't even know you. And I can see and sense that fruit that God is bringing about in your life. Alexander McLaren, the old Scottish preacher, love his stuff. Hard to understand, but I love his stuff. What I can understand of it. It says, if, if there be any real union with Christ, there will be life. If there be life, there will be fruit. He says the fruit is the test of the life. There's no two ways about it. So here's where the rub comes in with this passage. When we read this, here's what we inevitably do. There is someone in our life that we love who has made a profession of faith and we read this and we go, hmm, I don't know if I see any fruit in their life. And we begin to, in our soul, to use the old word to sort of uh, be in travail and we are anxious and we are concerned why we don't see fruit in their life for a long period of time. We're not talking about a little dry season like a little winter of the soul we're talking about like a long time where it's like, I, I just don't see any evidence that they're desiring Christ. Like they're not staying near to the Lord. This passage is the rub, and I just want to clearly lay my two cents on the table, and, 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 and there's plenty of room for disagreement. That's what makes us Baptists. But if there is no fruit, there's no root. If there's no fruit, there's no root. If there is a profession of faith, somebody says, oh, I believe in, in God. Look, go, go read the studies. Do you know how many people say today that they are Christians? That they identify as born-again believers and you begin to ask them about the rest of their life and, and there's just no desire. They don't want to be in church and they don't want, and I'm not saying being in church is it. But I'm just saying they don't desire to be near Christ. There's not that new appetite. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But there can be a profession without a possession. 
It's there. It can be there. If we don't see the Spirit of God manifesting itself in a person's life, at least to some growing degree, not perfectly, but just in a slow, kind of incremental way that a vine grows grapes, then we have to ask the question, does that person really have a relationship with Jesus Christ? So let me answer a question that may be coming up. Can a believer go through a dry period? Of course. Of course. Go to the orchards right now and look at what's going on. They've kind of gone into this dormant sort of sleep stage. They're not bearing fruit. There can be periods of time where we're not bearing fruit if if we're going through a difficulty. I'm I'm not going to fill in all those blanks. But here's the fact. If we're not bearing fruit for a long period of time, then we have to ask some tough questions. Because Jesus clearly says if we are in Christ, we will bear fruit. So you can go through a dry period of time. You can struggle. You can stumble as a Christian and fall into sin. But listen, you won't fall and stay there. You won't fall and fall away. You won't walk away and just have no desire to come back. Did the prodigal son wander away for a period of time? Yes, he did. What happened in the end, though? He came to his senses. He looked around and said, where am I? What am I doing? I don't belong here because I'm a son. And that was something that the father was doing in him. And so a believer can go through a dry period, certainly. Can a Christian be cut off? Can a true believer lose their salvation? The scripture says no. Jesus clearly says, I've not lost or will not lose any that the Father has given to me. So if the Father gives that one to Jesus in his hand, he's not going to lose what is his. How can the sovereign king of the universe lose anything? But I want to say this. If we're banking on just intellectual agreement with Jesus, that's what the demons do. You realize that? That's what the demons do in the book of James. It says very clearly that the demons believe that God exists and they shudder. They are terribly afraid of God. Do you know why? Because they have impeccable theology. They, have very, they know exactly who Jesus is. They know, they, that's what happened with, uh, when Jesus cast the, the demons out. They said, we know who you are, but who are these others? They know exactly who Jesus is. But see, those demons don't love him, they don't worship him, they don't desire to abide in him. Go to John chapter 6 if you're not clear on this whole believers and and, and true believers thing. Jesus says to his disciples some hard things. You have to eat my flesh, drink my blood in John chapter 6. He says some tough things to, listen, to his disciples. These were students and followers of his, and it says this, that many of them, Many of his disciples fell away. They walked away. They defected and they bailed. And Jesus looks at the rest of who's left and he says, are you guys going to walk away too? You know what Peter says? I mean, Peter's a guy that has some dry periods, right? He has some real, like his mouth is the size of a foot. And he says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. See, the Spirit had started this work inside of Peter that Peter couldn't deny. And Peter couldn't just run from because he was delighting in his Father. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So if God begins his work on a person, he raises them from death to life, he's not going to abandon what he started. See, I'm bad for that. 
I'll start on something, I'll start folding a load of clothes, and then I'll remember that I've got to go back to the bedroom and, you know, help do something, straighten up some things, or put the diapers in the little baskets so they're ready for the next diaper change, and I'll run and do that, and then I'm like, oh man, i got to turn that so-and-so off on the stove, and then, um, I, I don't probably do all this that I'm acting like I do, but, but anyway, but I get something started, and then I'm like, I need to go do something else. See, God doesn't do that. God's not locked into one little thing. He's a sovereign king of the universe. And so when he begins a work in you, listen, rejoice, worship, and sing. Because if there is a delight for Christ in your heart, he's going to carry that through to the end. If you love him and you desire him, you know what he's going to do? Slowly, incrementally build that appetite to where it's just like, man, I can't wait to be in his presence. I've talked to people. Sorry, I've been bringing it down here. I've talked to people who are on their deathbed, who are facing terrible diagnoses, and they look straight at me and go, I can't wait to be with Jesus. And I'm like, how does that happen? Because all along there might have been two grapes when they were a Christian, when they first became a Christian, and then God grows it, and then God grows it, and then God grows it. And there is an appetite now for only what the Spirit can do and satisfy within them. And they don't want the things that this world has to offer anymore. They want Jesus because Jesus is the only satisfying person to their soul. God always finishes what he starts. So let's get practical. What does it mean to abide in Christ? The word means to remain, to stay, to rest, to endure. Any one of those. Means to kind of stay put. I think about it like this: uh, If somebody comes into my house, I sometimes will jokingly say, "Welcome to my humble abode. Welcome to my home." Here's the way I practically think about it: If we abide in Christ, we make our home in Him. We're comfortable in our home, right? We know where things are. That's where we stay. That's where we live. If you abide in Jesus Christ, it's not a hotel. You're not coming and going once a year. Because it's Christmas time. It's every single day you're living your life in Christ, remaining there because it's your home. And that's where you want to be. And what do we say uh, when we go on vacation, when we come back home? There's no place like what? Home. If Christ Jesus is your home and you have that desire, you wake up every day wanting to abide in him and be settled and suited in him. So here's what it means. You don't disconnect and try to function on your own. You don't try to do this, the, the spiritual Christian life in your own strength because Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. William Barclay says the secret of the life of Jesus was this, his constant contact with God. His constant contact with God. But did it happen by accident? No. He deliberately, intentionally took steps, even though he was God in the flesh, to keep a union alive and healthy with his Father. He deliberately did it. He intentionally arranged his life around the Father in such a way that he could never forget his Father because his Father was central to all of it. So you know what we need to do as people who are still walking around with this body of death, as Paul calls in Romans 7, with the sinful flesh? We need to rearrange our lives so that Christ is at the center, so that Jesus is in the middle and everything else is a branch off of that Not because we have to, but because we want to. Can I lay this in front of you this morning? Listen to this. 
If God has raised you out of death and into life, if he's brought you out of the darkness and into his light, and listen to this, if he's adopted you out of the orphanage of belonging to the world and sin and Satan, and you are now a son or daughter of the king, then there's a willing desire that wasn't there before. I want to be near my daddy. I want to be with my father. I want to be with my family. We abide in Christ by intentionally putting him at the center. I've got a picture if you guys, Bo, if you'll pull it up for me on the back. When I was in elementary school, does anybody remember what these are? Brainstorming bubbles. Right, Shannon? These are brainstorming bubbles. And I remember these things because I used to love the writing process. I'm a process-oriented thinker. And so we had to draw out this little map and we had to put our topic, our subject at the center. And then off of that center bubble would go this idea. And then it would have three or four bubbles. Off of the other would go this idea and it would have three or four bubbles. And here's the thing I want to say to you this morning. Christ belongs in that center bubble. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He didn't come so we could have a casual church attendance. He didn't come so we could have a casual relationship with him. He came to show us the glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And as we behold it, we desire more and more for him to be at the center of it all. But you know what I'm afraid that we are doing as Christians? And this breaks my heart. We're putting Christ up here in the top right bubble. Because fill in the blank is more important practically to us than Jesus. I don't even need to fill in the blank. Chances are this morning, when you see this map, you can think of one or two or five things, like just like I can, that we have a tendency to put in that center bubble and we move Christ to the outside. That's not it. Abiding in Christ means we intentionally rearrange life so that Jesus is at the center. So how did Jesus do that? He withdrew to private places to pray. He fasted to focus on the Father. He participated in worship even though he was God in the flesh. He shared the gospel. He loved people. He served people. He didn't do these things because, well, I guess I have to. There's a lot of people listening to me and they're hanging on what I'm saying. He did it because he delighted in doing it. He wanted to do it. We talked about Psalm 37 verse 4 this past Wednesday night at church. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. You know what it says? It says, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord and then he will do something unthinkable. He will give you the desires of your heart. Do you know why that's the case? Because the more you delight in God, the more you love being with Him and rejoice in His presence and seek Him, then He begins to replace those old desires that you have, those old appetites for sin. He slowly replaces those over time. And so now His desires become your desires. And so if His desires are in your heart and you desire those things, He's going to give you what you desire because it's what He desires. I know we're running low on time this morning. We're getting to the, to the end of our, our time this morning. And, and I, would, I would love to finish up the, the end of this. I think what, what we need to do is this. Let me, let me kind of go to the end. Um, the word fruit. How do we define fruit quickly? How do we define fruit? It's Christ-like character. Simple. Christ-like character. As you abide in the vine... 
these grapes of Jesus' love and his compassion and his joy and his servitude, these things begin to show up in our lives because we live in an intimate relationship with him. We resemble him because we have spent time abiding with him. His thoughts replace our old thoughts. His patterns replace our old patterns. The culture of discipleship begins to replace our culture of self. And so the old is replaced with the new. Carrie was watching the news this past week, which we watch sparingly as little as we can um, and still stay informed. But Carrie was watching the news, and this story came on, world news, of this Indian boy. Some of you may have seen it. This Indian boy who was five years old, and he was at a train station with his brother, his older brother, and he fell asleep at this train station. And when he fell asleep at the train station, he woke up inside of a cargo train that was heading somewhere that he had no idea where it was going. And so he just rode and rode and rode and rode by himself, had no idea where he was, did not know where his brother was, and he was being taken hundreds of miles away from his home. The train stops and he gets off, and as a five-year-old little boy, he's in a completely brand new place, a completely, completely brand new land. And so he begins to look around for how he's going to survive, and he basically becomes a street beggar. He just walks around begging things from people, but the police are after the child beggars to put them uh, away. And so he avoids the police. Eventually, he winds up in an orphanage. When he winds up in the orphanage, he's adopted by an Australian family. Australian. Okay, so he's Indian. Uh, he, he's dark hair, dark skin. He's adopted uh, by this uh, white family, this Caucasian-looking family with different accents, different culture, different pattern, different all these things. And as you watched him talk on the TV screen, and he's telling his story, he sounds nothing like somebody who would be born in India and grown up in India. Why? Because he lived in this new home. This new union with this new family had replaced everything about him that was Indian. And now he was thoroughly Australian because he was united with this family. And so you could close your eyes, and you could picture an Australian person, whatever you think they look like, And then you open your eyes and you see an Indian person. What happened? That living union, being in their home. I keep doing this because I'm thinking of a vine being grafted into the branch. That new living union began to overwhelm what was there before that was old. And so he was not who he was anymore. And the fruit of being an Australian person was now evident in his life. That's what God wants for your life. He wants to see fruit be bore in your Christian life so that it glorifies him. And there is an abundance of that that points other people toward Christ. Let me give you this quote from David Platt. When we are born again, our reason for living changes. Possessions and position are no longer our priorities. Comfort and security are no longer our first concerns. Safety is no longer our goal because self is no longer our God. We now want God's glory more than we want our own lives. The more we glorify Him, the more we enjoy Him, the more we realize this is what it means biblically, biblically to be a Christian. So let me leave you with three quick questions this morning and I'll close. Number one, is there evidence in your life that you are truly born again, a disciple, a follower, a believer in Jesus Christ? Is there evidence in your life that you love him and follow him? 
Has his relationship with you caused you to grow in areas where in the past you just weren't getting it, getting it right? Number two, are you intentionally arranging or rearranging your life around Jesus? When you look at your schedule, is your schedule arranged around Jesus or do you pencil him into little pockets of time where you think you can fit him into the day? Your personal spending habits. What you spend your money on. Does it reflect the life arranged around Christ or arranged around you? Your giving habits to the work of God here at his local church at PG Baptist. When you give, do you hold on to your offering envelope with white knuckles and somebody has to like peel it out of your hands? Is that in your heart? Or is there a glad and generous giving that's like, man, I'd love to give more. And if God blesses me, I'm going to give more. And if he gives me another opportunity, I'm going to give more to that. If God called you to give more, would you do it with a grateful heart? How about your family life? Moms and dads. There's a lot of moms and dads in this place. Does you, do your kids see mom and dad putting Jesus first in everything? Or do they see hobbies and kids' sports and weekend getaways coming before Christ? Are we rearranging our life around Christ? And then here's the biggie. Is there a continually growing desire in you for the things of God? Do you hunger to be nearer to Jesus? Do you long to be in his word? Are you willing to receive his pruning knowing that he wants the best for you because he's got you and he wants to bring about fruit in your life? How about your personal evangelism? Is there at least a desire to tell somebody else about Jesus because of what he's done in you? If he's not done anything in you, there's nothing to tell. But listen to me, if, he, if you've got a story, it is his story. And if you are abiding in that vine and that life flows through you, you're, you're going to be excited about telling somebody, listen to what God did in my life. Listen to what he did in my family. Listen to how he saved my marriage. Listen to how he brought me to this church and I was wasting away in so and so and such and such. Do you want to be nearer to Christ? See, you couldn't desire it for yourself if you were spiritually dead. And Ephesians says we're spiritually dead. We can call it what we want to, but the Holy Spirit told Paul to say spiritually dead. And dead people don't desire. Dead people don't desire. If there's a desire in there, that's because the Spirit of God put it there. Maybe some of you this morning, the light came on. And as you're looking at John 15 and you're seeing it, just stand up off the page and maybe confront you in your sin. You realize, I don't know Jesus as my Savior. I do the church thing really well. I clean up really well. I serve on such and such a committee really well. But I don't know Jesus intimately, personally, as my Savior. I've just been going through the motions. You know what you can do this morning? Forsake all of that. Repent of it. Ask Him to forgive you and cleanse you and give you a new, fresh heart. He says, I'll put a heart of flesh in there where there was a heart of stone. Because I want to tell you, verse 6 is a serious passage. Verse 6 talks about a coming judgment. For those who appeared to be in the vine, but there was no life and there was no fruit. And because there was no life, they would be cut off and thrown into the judgment and burned in the fire. 
please, please. As the scriptures say, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. If the light came on for you this morning and you say, I can't wait. Today has to be that day. What better way for you to celebrate Christmas this year than by asking Jesus not to come into your heart, but to call you out of the dead so that you have real, spiritual, living life within you from the vine.